This episode of the Cinema Vention Podcast is brought to you by Rotting Wonk, RozJ001, Jack Wolf, and Wearmall 3. If you want to become one of the names listed, go support the show today at patreon.com slash wscottis1. Hi, I'm W. Scott is one, and I have not seen the movie Buckaroo Bonsai. Increasing his cultural IQ, one movie at a time. This is Cinemavention. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Cinemavention podcast, where we review and discuss classic movies that I should have seen long ago. Today, we'll be discussing the movie The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, which my guest has seen before. He is the co-host of the Going Through Who podcast and the former co-host of Diamond Club Game Night. Please welcome Kevin Fournier to the show. Kevin, how are you doing, man? I am doing very well, sir. How are you? I'm doing great, man. I'm uh, I'm so excited to talk about this movie, and uh, this is one that um, I th- this is one that you that you put on this uh, sheet, I think, right on the list of movies, right? Did yeah, yeah, man. So this will be a this will be a good uh, movie. I'm excited to talk about it with you, and um, I've got some thoughts on it, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, I take take that from take my sentence on that as you as you will you know <laughs> uh, since you might have a few comments during our watch party based on your reaction to some of the scenes yeah but that's mm-hmm. part of the reason why i like introducing people to this movie because it's 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 a movie mm-hmm. it's an it's it's something and it's going <laughs> to be a little different i think everybody that watches it so i'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say about it and thank you by the way um for having me on and uh letting me talk about this movie with you yeah of course man uh now before we uh talk about the movie here i always like to go over the stats of the movie real quick so let's go ahead and do that real quick here so the adventures of buckaroo bonsai across the eighth dimension is a way too long title and i will stop referring to the movie as such <laughs> but it's available for rent to purchase on dvd and blu-ray and physical stores and on all major internet distributors and is available to stream for free right now on Pluto TV and Tubi. Um, so, you know, no reason to no reason to pay money if you can stream it for free, right? Uh, Buckaroo yep. Banzai was released by 20th Century Fox on August 10th, 1984. The movie was directed by W.D. Richer and stars Peter Weller, Ellen Barkin, John Lithgow, Jeff Goldblum, and Christopher Lloyd. The movie had a budget of $17 million and made $6.3 million in the theaters. Oof, a <laughs> little bit of a uh, little bit of a stinker in the box office, but um, it sounds like it made it money uh, on demand. It sounds like or I, sh- I should say on DVD and VHS, probably. So uh, it has definitely had a second life outside of the movie theater. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember when you first saw this movie, Kevin? You know, I really don't. It was released in the middle of 84, which would have put me. I'll go ahead and date myself here. That would have put me just starting my high school life. I have to believe that I didn't see it in its theatrical run, but I know I remember clearly geeking out about the movie with my friends, with the group that I kind of formed that first close bond with once I was in high school. Mm -hmm. So I have to imagine we either caught it on uh, home video after it was released at some point or could have been like an HBO type of thing. Yeah, yeah. When I first took it in. 
Yeah, that's, but it definitely yeah. it was definitely something that we geeked out about once we had seen it and kind of formed a bond over it. You know how mm-hmm. that is in your high school years. You you know you and your friends will share your likes and your dislikes, and those bonds are pretty strong. Yeah, and they I really remember are. this one being something we really really grooved over. Yeah, after we had seen it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, it's I, very much the case when it comes to high school life. And like, yeah, there's 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 something about like, you know, like movies that sort of like, you know, connect with people. I mean, even beyond high school, really, like um, it's just kind of one of those like shared experiences. Like it, like it, it's one of those things where it's like you go through everyone goes through life differently. Right. But with movies, it's like you you all watch the same movie and all can have different or perhaps the same opinion on certain aspects right but the but the difference is is that like it's one central thing that everyone can talk about and it's we're on the same playing field you know well that's the i mean you hit on something that's part of what i love as a movie consumer Mm -hmm. is that shared experience of seeing a movie and even though you may take different things away from it when you walk out of the theater or when you turn off the the Blu-ray player, there is something to be said for sharing that experience with other people. And then when you link that up with the types of things that you, that can kind of run deep into your soul when you're at a certain age, uh, the combination of those two things can be really powerful. And even during the watch party, certain scenes would happen and I'd hear certain scenes of dialogue and I absolutely found myself right back in you know, whatever it would have been, maybe late 84 or sometime in 85 after, yeah. after we had, we had seen that as, as that core friends group after we'd seen it and would recite lines to each other. Um, obviously there are, there are some pieces of dialogue that stand out in this movie. Yeah. Uh, some of them have worked their way into the lexicon. Some of them are going to be really obscure unless you've seen the movie. And if mm-hmm. you've seen it, you'll know it right away. When yeah. Yeah. Well, and and that and on that point, when when you talk about um, being back in '84 and seeing when you're watching this movie again, like I have experienced that with like old like TV shows and old like you know the few old movies I have seen, you know, like um w- like before Scump, for example, um since that one was a was a special episode that we did that I had already seen, um like I that literally took me right back to when I watched it for the first time in my parents' living room. And, you know, when I watched it for the first time and same with TV shows, it's like, I remember it's like, it's almost like you get transported back to your childhood. If, even if it's only for like a few, um, the minute, the few minutes of that series or movie or whatever media you're watching, you know, like it's, it's really, it's really fascinating, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the thing about the, uh, about the logo, because, uh, there's a logo that is, uh, featured especially prominently on the tour bus that uh buckaroo bonsai uh is a part of like he's he's part of this you know sort of band or whatever um and uh, i'm trying to find the name of it right now uh the oh help me out here sorry um where is it oh, the, the band name yeah the band name yeah it's the hong kong cavaliers that's it yeah thank you but <laughs> uh but but he's touring in that bus right and uh, we've seen that logo before on that bus, haven't we? <laughs> well, it's it's interesting because I, I remember the conversation during the watch party, and I was a little confused by it because there's actually two ways I think you can look at this. 
there's a, and it has to be, I mean, I'm assuming it was custom made. Um, it's almost like the badging on the front of this bus. You know how you'd have, you have a, a hood ornament on a car that's stylized in a certain way. And it tells you what make or, or what auto company that is. You've yeah. Got your BMW, yeah. Uh-huh. Mercedes Benz, your Jaguar. I have to believe they created it for this bus. And it's something you see a lot of. It's sort of that, that reversed flip side um, lettering back to back. And I saw that. And that's not the one that I recognized right away. Oh, interesting. The one that I recognized is, and it only shows up, I think for a, I think it's a brief moment in the movie. There is, and it's, it's very prominent on the packaging for the movie. Um, you know, your, your VHS boxes and the yeah, DVD yeah. and Blu-ray covers. Mm-hmm. The way that Buckaroo Banzai's name is lettered out in that packaging. Yeah. If you take the B's that are used there mm-hmm. and alter them just slightly. So like in the packaging, um, the B's kind of go down very very long wise the bottom half of that b is kind of elongated mm-hmm. um and then it kind of angles up and there's a little bit of angularity to both the b's if you take those and you shorten up that bottom part and make it more even and then take those two b's and flip them back to back mm-hmm. that's the logo that i was thinking of when the topic came up in the watch party and it yeah. wasn't until after that that i realized oh wait there's a whole second buckaroo bonsai logo that you see in that scene and And then I made the connection. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing, because uh, here's one thing I do know for a fact. Ryan Brushwood has definitely seen this movie before (laughs) (laughs) because um, I'm noticing some uh, similarities in um, in the two uh, logos there. I don't know about you, but uh, but I'm I'm seeing that a little bit, you know, (laughs) I yeah, I have to believe he was very heavily inspired by mm-hmm. the the buckaroo bonsai logo and and the stylizing of yeah. those two bees like, and you know what it makes sense buckaroo bonsai brian brushwood mm-hmm. why not right yeah right well and, and it's definitely not a carbon copy of course like you can tell that they no. were stylized differently although i guess some people were saying that the brian brushwood on the road um podcast like um was pretty much a carbon copy but i don't know like that's when I put when I made the connection after the fact, that's the one that I thought of. Mm-hmm. And it's I mean, I'm not looking to get anybody into any IP trouble here, but <laughs> it's it's pretty close. I yeah. think there's a bordering around it in the movie that you don't see in BB on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's pretty close. Yeah. yeah. I mean, here's the <laughs> thing, though. That was early uh, Brushwood, though. It's like it's probably I think it's like the first podcast he ever did i mean I, I guess apart from scam school because that was technically a podcast at the very beginning with revision three yeah. so i mean but yeah it's, i don't know it's it's early enough on to where it's and i mean here's the thing if nothing else um if you're going to pay homage to something why not mm-hmm. pay homage to a movie like buckaroo bonsai especially right considering the fact that i could probably make a comparison between both brian's brand and the brand of this movie being Mm-hmm. Gen- in the general category of something you haven't experienced before. Yeah. So if yeah. nothing else, it's kind of an homage to a style or to a feeling. 
right? Yeah, and like, and, and the thing about like you know Buckaroo Banzai going through the mountain and stuff like that, like that sounds like something they would cover on Modern Rogue. You know what I mean? Like that definitely <laughs> sounds like it. You know, like now that you mention it, I think we should suggest that as an episode, <laughs> right? Yeah, man. That's and then we can see them fighting about who gets to ride in the sled and <laughs> potentially end up splattered onto the side of a mountain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely have to reset the injury counter there. Um <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> but uh other actors in this film I recognize, of course, Jeff Goldblum from Jurassic Park and Independence Day, doing acting that only Jeff Goldblum can do. You know, like he he has that style of acting that's just so unique to him. It, it, he's just like like it, it's like he's not even like it's not even it's not like he's even acting and delivering the lines like it, he he's delivering the lines as if he's like kind of doing them off the cuff, even though he's definitely not doing that. But like he does it in such a way that it's like, I don't know, like I just it's weird for me because like it's so unique in that way that it almost makes it harder for me to remember that he's actually playing a character. Like every time I see Jeff Goldblum in a movie, I'm like. It's hard for me to be like, oh, yeah, no, that's not Jeff Goldblum's character. That's just Jeff Goldblum. He just happens to be in this movie. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, that's I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I'm not going to be the first person to say this, um, nor will I say it as eloquently as some others have. Jeff Goldblum has a very particular style about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a very particular acting method. And there's nobody quite like it. Yeah. Somehow it works. Mm -hmm. I very rarely find myself watching Jeff Goldblum in a role or even just in real life. He's, he's done some, you know, um, not really reality TV, but he's done some Jeff's adventures types of things that I've seen. And he just, he comes across as a very affable person, even though his, his style is very mannered and it almost, it, it almost feels like he's affecting a persona. Mm-hmm. But when you see him in the movies and how he does things, and then you see him in real life and how he does things, he's one of those actors who basically plays himself in, in every, every movie. Role. Yeah. That's yes. what I'm saying. Yeah. Like every movie. And, yeah. And it still worked. Yeah. No, it did. That, part of that, you have to credit him with knowing what types of roles to play. and how to how to make his choices so that he will seem at home being essentially a version of himself but maybe just a a heightened version of himself or right him as if he were a brilliant mathematician say in the case of Jurassic Park right or in the case of Buckaroo Banzai Jeff Goldblum if he had been a trained neurosurgeon who also dabbled in singing a little bit and decided he wanted to get involved with the touring group that is exploring other dimensions of reality and is and is also a cowboy at some point in this too which i which i thought was i see here's the thing like it's one of those situations like he's he's a surgeon like at the very beginning right and then like he then just randomly halfway through the movie he like dons this cowboy outfit and is just wearing it for the rest of the movie but like i, I don't know it's like i don't understand i didn't i don't understand the cowboy outfit with it with that character i really don't so so here's here's i think one of the keys to understanding that aspect of buck of Rubanzai. okay and and i have to credit um peter subchinsky 
uh, writing for RogerEbert.com back in August of 2016, mm-hmm. um, did an article on the movie. And as he writes, uh, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai is just your typical sci-fi slash action slash comedy slash rock and roll slash kung fu slash political satire slash neo-western slash guys on a mission extravaganza. <laughs> this movie literally is trying to be 17 different things at once. Yeah, no, I could see that. Yeah. And part of the reason, I think part of the reason why you see some of the things that you see on screen, some of the wardrobe choices, the special effects, it's it's putting all of that on the screen to try to help you understand these guys are not your normal folks, right? Mm-hmm. There's something different about these guys. And remember, the whole concept of Buckaroo Banzai as a character is that he's basically a modern Renaissance man. Mm-hmm. Right? He, we see it in the opening scroll for the movie. He, we, he is a, a brilliant neurosurgeon who, who decides that that's not quite enough for him. So then he starts to take up music and art and science, and he becomes this sort of, of jack-of-all-trades and ends up excelling at very many of them to the point where he's running these programs that are funded by the government, um, ostensibly, I guess, to to break land speed records, but then also to pick up on some work from the 1930s. So we'll, yeah. we'll get into that more later. Yeah, on. yeah. Well, it, you mentioned it, so I'll I'll mention it now. The text crawling on the screen at the very beginning, too. Like yeah. that's got that's an homage to Star Wars, right? Like that's got to be right. Definitely, it it, yeah. it 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 is absolutely trying to invoke that feeling. Um, to again, kind of give you that first hint of what type of movie, what type of story you're about to see. Mm-hmm. It's giving you that science fiction hint right, right off the bat. Yeah, the only um, difference is that they couldn't afford to make the text slanted. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, if it's if it's too close, you want to talk about intellectual property problems. Yeah, you know, true. <laughs> pretty sure Lucasfilm has a lawyer or two, and 20th Century Fox had a few back in the day as well. So. Yeah, and certainly Disney does now. <laughs> yeah. And that opening crawl. Besides mm-hmm. it being a nice little nod to Star Wars, it, it sets up a lot without having to force you to sit through some exposition, right? It gives you the basic outline of who this Buckaroo Banzai character is before you even see him on the screen. Yeah. Um, so you get that initial setup in a nice, tight little package. Here's, uh, here's the only so problem. So it serves multiple purposes. Yeah, here's the only problem with the text, though, is that, like, yeah, like, and, and, I'm, and I'm sure it does that very well. The only issue is that it moves so fa- so damn fast. I can't read it all. You know what I mean? Like that was my problem with it. Is like I couldn't like because it's like yeah no I'm 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 trying to read all of this so I have some like fo- or I have some something to go off of while before I watch this and yeah it's moving so damn fast I can't read all of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean it's a problem we don't suffer from too much today, especially with as prevalent as streaming media is now and home right, video, obviously, right. but watching this in a theater back in August of 84, if you weren't paying attention right from the jump, if you weren't settled in your seat, mm-hmm. you missed that entire thing. And honestly, God help you. If you walked in five minutes after the movie yeah. started, because I don't know how you would understand what is going on. Yeah. Cause that first five minutes is pretty jam packed full of stuff. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another character I want to call out Christopher Lloyd, um, in this movie is great. Um, I have them. Yes. I have such a fondness for Christopher Lloyd. Um, like in many ways he was my childhood and, and by that, I mean like he was, um, and I've talked about this, uh, before on this show, but, um, 
he was the voice of the bad guy in this PBS series I grew up on, um, Cyber Chase. Have you heard of this? You I have heard of it. I it was it was I think after my time. I don't think yeah, I've ever sure. seen it, but I have heard of it. Yeah, yeah, sure. No, and uh, it also uh, stars one um, R.I.P. Uh, Gilbert Gottfried as well. Uh, mm. So yeah, um, but. But what's weird is like, thanks to this movie now, I feel like I've seen every version of Christopher Lloyd there is. <laughs> you know, you've got you've got crazy scientist Christopher Lloyd from Back to the Future as um uh why wow, why am I blanking on this? Doc um Brown? Doc Brown. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, okay. I yep. yeah, but yeah, you got Doc Brown from Back to the Future. You have bald, lovable Fester from the Adams family version of Christopher Lloyd. And now you have full head of hair, Christopher Lloyd. Like I've gone through the whole <laughs> gauntlet of Christopher Lloyd at, at this point, you know, <laughs> my first memory of Christopher Lloyd as an actor is from the, the television show that started in the late seventies and continued into the eighties called taxi. Yeah. Uh, starring Judd Hirsch and also starred Tony Danza, uh, Mary Lou Henner, um, Jeff Conway, uh Andy Kaufman who oh, yeah. his his entire career is like a series of episodes of discussion in and of themselves. Yeah, man. <laughs> so Taxi was a a it was a fairly non-standard sitcom in terms of what was on the air at the time and mm-hmm. I I watched that show with my family and that was my first exposure to Christopher Lloyd. He played a character on the show called Reverend Jim Ignatowski and his character was If I remember correctly, in the show, he's homeless, Mm -hmm. but he's also driving the cab. Like, he lives in his cab, and time has not been good to him. You get the distinct sense, and I think it's even called out in dialogue, that he has experimented in some of the pharmaceuticals, shall we say? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. he was this very off-the-wall, just out-there character. I might even go so far as to say he was sort of a proto-Kramer. Oh, to draw comparisons to the character from Seinfeld. Okay. Um, both in terms of personality and, and his own personal outlook and his attitude and his behavior and sort of on the look side, Reverend Jim was very disheveled. Yeah. Well, and, and what's crazy too, like, like, cause that's the, that's what's crazy to me, right? Is that like, yeah, you, you grew up with Christopher Lloyd in the, with his seventies and eighties show. I grew up with him in the, uh, in the two thousands, right? Like it's crazy. The, career christopher lloyd has had you know like to where like we we both kind of grew up with him in completely different shows and like but we both grew up with him like that's what's crazy to me you know and it was great like because i i i christopher lloyd always played the bad guy in the in that pbs series so to see him playing the bad guy role again in this movie was pretty cool too and also it was it was kind of weird too because like because it's you know of course it's like a kid's show that I'm growing up on now and now I'm watching this movie and he's like cussing in it and I'm just like <laughs> it's a little weird you know like especially given like his other role that I know him from yeah oh sure sure and you know in general yeah this is going to be a more adult role but mm-hmm. it, it's it actually makes me kind of chuckle inside a little bit too thinking of Buckaroo Banzai as a quote unquote adult movie it's yeah I mean this movie is so childish in so many of the different things that it does yeah, and dude. so many of the things you see it's including it's a different type that, of including the childish. fact that his name is John Big Big Booty <laughs> Big, Bo- Big Booty Big Booty 
Right. He's very, very important to make sure that you stress that. <laughs> exactly, um, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's one of the many quirks of the Buckaroo Banzai script. Yeah, and, story, and, and, yeah right? and there's so many more that we'll get to in just a moment <laughs> here, but... Uh, but uh, that the the theme music for this, so like the um, you you hear it a lot. Like it's in the intro, it's at the end. Um, pretty sure it's kind of somewhere in the middle too. But the but you have this like unique sort of synthesizer kind of track that they use for the intro music for this movie, and it kind of reminded me of the MacGyver theme, honestly. And it and it and MacGyver and this movie kind of are in the same sort of era i think um because because the original original macgyver was in was in the 80s too if i'm not mistaken um it it yeah. was yeah yeah and, and it's got like that unique 80s synthesizer sort of music choice that i feel like is definitely of its time you know like oh absolutely it's the the synth pop soundtrack style is absolutely a staple of mid eighties cinema, television, anything that involved music soundtrack at some point was going really hard on the synthesizers. Yeah. Yeah. I could have, that was, Oh God. It was reflecting what was popular at the time. There was that period, you know, coming out of the, the coming out of the disco era, you had a few different music genres that started to really spring. And one of those was sort of that pop punk aesthetic and some of the punk stuff got layered onto the pop and some of the pop stuff stuff got taken by the the punk artists and then you layer on top of that everything related to that glorious period of the 80s where everybody was wearing shoulder pads and reflective clothing and mm-hmm. you know whatever you want to throw in there and i feel like i feel like some people might refer to it like as the golden age of television because keep in mind it's <laughs> like no because like cuz keep in mind like you know streaming obviously like the internet like that's not a thing yet right like if at all i mean it, it is but it's like it's not a mainstream product yet like but then but um but you've also like got cable too but like they're kind of still on the up and up like like mm-hmm. at this point cable was where streaming was probably five years ago in our timeline you know so like it was very early mm-hmm. on in the cable days i feel like right I, i'll admit i'm just going off a of feel on this one Okay. I think in terms of its breadth and and the scope of its reach, I think I'd agree with you. Mm-hmm. But I think the one big difference that makes that era of cable television stand out, and really, I think when we're talking about the some of the aesthetic tone of the movie in terms of its its soundtrack, don't forget that MTV had been around for three years at this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So MTV changed the landscape in terms of both what people enjoyed in terms of popular music and what was considered pop music. Yeah. And in terms of how people consumed it and how music and visuals became so intertwined Mm -hmm. because of MTV. Mm -hmm. And I think that type of thing is reflected in movies like Buckaroo Banzai where there's, Mm. and I won't swear to it because obviously I'm not going to claim to be an expert in terms of the creation of the story and the writing of the script. Um, that E.M. Rauch put together for this film. But I suspect that when he came up with a character that was going to be this Renaissance man, and when he decided that part of that jack-of-all-trades approach was going to be the fact that he was part of a band that traveled and toured, you have to believe that you know he thought of who would be 
the analog, you know, big bands of today, the the really popular groups that would tour and Mm -hmm. sell out, sell out stadiums. Um, And that, that had to have been influenced by people that were on MTV at the time. Right. Yeah. Oh, so, and, uh, I don't think it's a coincidence. Yeah, yeah. That, and that was back when MTV was at its glory days. Nowadays, it's like, <laughs> yeah. No. It's, it, I, I, MTV has definitely taken a, a step down uh, in recent years, for sure. It's, yeah, MTV it, is uh, not the same channel as it used to be. <laughs> it, it is not. It as, as many things have over the decades, it has evolved with time, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like, well, and, and Vivo has kind of taken that spot, I feel like, nowadays when it comes to, like, because it's like, you know, you used to get all the music videos on Meet, mm-hmm. uh, or on Meet TV, on MTV, um, and um, and now, like, it, they, they're all just supplied by Vivo and, you know, YouTube in a way, too, so, yeah. Yeah, or Vivo via YouTube, right? Yeah, via because YouTube, right, they've yeah. they got their own platform out there, and and yeah, it's 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 a different world. Yeah, it really is. So uh, I have some I have some great uh, favorite moments about this film. And um, all right, let's hear them. I love I love how the license plate on the overthruster is just Rocket 88, by the way, like uh, like meaning, by the way, because the way I interpret that is like, that's not the first time they've tested this rocket. Like, I I, I don't know, like maybe maybe they've had 87 other ones that just crashed and burned. I don't know. <laughs> that's that's an I I kind of like that idea, actually. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, obviously they're running this multiple times before they even think about putting somebody. Oh yeah, uh, sure. In the in the rockets, well, it's not a sled; it's a vehicle, right? Before they put it in a test car. Yeah. Although, as it turns out, that wasn't always the case. We'll talk about that as we get a flashback scene later in the movie right. that shows us some of the early experiments. Um, it's funny when I when I saw that. The thought that I had, and and remember, this is coming from somebody who's a big music guy and who has some history in radio broadcasting. Mm-hmm. Because Buckaroo Banzai is a because he's a musician. The first thing I thought of when I saw the the license plate was the old blues song "Rocket 88. Oh, um, which is, uh, and I have to refer to my notes here. I don't have this convert uh, con, uh, locked into the memory bank. Sure, sure. Um, it was originally recorded back in March of 1951 by uh, Jackie Brenston and his Delta Cats. Um, mm. And it was a song that went to number one. And Rocket 88 has been covered by probably three and a half million people since 1951. Uh-huh. Um, okay. But that's, that's, that's the reference that I thought of. So you've got the music tie-in. He is a modern musician, but he's somebody who, being a well-rounded and a very learned person as we find out early in the movie yeah uh, you can appreciate the who classics too yeah exactly it's it's a i looked at it as a, as a nice subtle little indication of him understanding the history of the rock and roll that he performs on stage with the hong kong cavaliers and kind of paying homage to that history while at the same time being a nice little nod to, hey, we're building a rocket ship here, so yeah, why don't we call it a rocket. That's just interesting. Slap the name rocket right on it. That, that's right? interesting that I never even knew about that song. That's crazy. I mean, I, I feel like I probably have seen it. I just don't know the title, you know, like or I've heard of it rather. 
Um, I'm sure you've heard one of the many versions of it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, no, that's crazy. I never even knew that. Yeah. That, but honestly, <laughs> that, honestly, though, like you're, that probably makes more sense than my, <laughs> than my 87 <laughs> previous well, but, theory. But yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to jump it too far. I know we're going to, we'll talk about it as we get further into the movie, but mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. there is, this isn't the first test they've run. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Also, uh, also the fact that it has to have, you know, of course it's the eighties, so it's gotta have, it's gotta have freaking lasers and that's a technical term. (laughs) Yeah. Hello. Freaking lasers make everything better. (laughs) And that kind of ties into, um, I mean, like we've talked about it a little bit. There's a definite look about this Mm -hmm. film that was definitely influenced by everything that was happening in the early eighties. But there are some things, especially around the science in the movie, that they try to show as more advanced and more futuristic. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the same thing you see in all movies. Anytime a movie tries to do something that is intended to look like it's quote unquote futuristic, it never really comes off that way. Especially. It's very hard to pull that off, especially if you're watching it. nine ten eleven almost 40 years after it was released yeah. like we have yeah right? i was gonna say yeah because it's like yeah they were trying to make it futuristic and yeah no it doesn't yeah yeah it's a little it looks like a, somebody programmed the graphics on their uh tandy trs 80 color right. computer too yeah mm-hmm. right yeah no it's kind of cringe from that perspective <laughs> a little bit but you know <laughs> they were trying they were trying <laughs> the night the nice thing about it is in this movie it's relatively limited so you get just enough of it to be like oh yeah that's what they would have thought looked cool back then and then it's done and you can forget about it and you can focus back or try to focus back on what's happening on the screen Mm -hmm. so it's not too distracting it's just it stands out in sort of that warm fuzzy feeling way but 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 both the but both the good aliens and the bad aliens are are all named John. Like I don't know what it is about the name maybe because it's John Doe or something. Maybe that's why I don't know. It's um, here's the thing, and I'll say this with a a small asterisk because not only is there a novelization of the film that was done relatively much later after the film was released, mm. but there is some other work related to the movie, so, and I I have not experienced either of those. I don't think we really get an explanation as to why every alien is named John Fillmore. Yeah. It's just, it it just is. It's a fact that exists in this movie's universe. Mm. And I kind of like the fact that they don't try to explain it. Yeah. They make reference to it. There are jokes that are centered around this fact. And then they have some great fun with the various last names that the aliens have decided to take. We referenced, mm-hmm. you know, Big Booty, Big Bootay at the beginning. Right, right. These names are completely insane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it could just be nothing more than the simple juxtaposition of one of the most common and and what I would say is most simple first names, John. Yeah. Juxtaposed with all of these just complete whack job last names that they come up with. <laughs> yeah, I I still like my theory of just the the John Doe uh, thing. Like that's that that was their inspiration because John Doe is used in everything that doesn't have a name. So <laughs> it very well could be. And uh, while we're talking about the names, something else they do really that I really appreciate in the film is they use that same John name even when we have alien characters portrayed by 
female actors. Yeah, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's about two thirds of the way through the movie. Mm-hmm. We finally get to meet one of the aliens named John M. Dahl, right. played by Rosalind Cash. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, it's another, for whatever reason they decided to go with this naming convention, they at least didn't let it limit them in terms of the character portrayals and the characterizations themselves. Perhaps, they, that, perhaps you could say that they were ahead of their time when it came to uh, gender, uh, to den- gender neutrality in that perspective, you know? <laughs> I mean, look, as we record this in early 2023, I feel like it would be remiss to point out that it could very well be considered ahead of its time Yeah, in a very, very small way. I will mm-hmm. admit I'm not going to try to claim that anything about Buckaroo Banzai across the eight dimension is cutting edge in terms of, or intended to be anything to be presented as a, you know, held up as a paragon of gender identity rights or anything like that. Sure, But, but it's, but it's an interesting choice to have made in the context of a movie that was produced. You know, the movie was made sometime in 83 and released in 84. Mm Mm-hmm. I I would like to go back and and get a sense if I could of any sort of reaction to moviegoers or critics or otherwise from a movie who had a female character playing a quote a quote unquote male alien or have, yeah. at least having a male alien's name. That's interesting. It yeah. could be that this movie was so bonkers that nobody even cared. That, yeah, nobody even who noticed. Knew? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's probably the least noteworthy thing throughout all of the stuff. Yeah, that's in right. The movie. Including the fact that uh, it's noteworthy that the aliens can just vertically jump like they just they have no like uh, <laughs> like they just have a vertical leap like they can just leap over, you know, tall structures and and everything well, just without ease, you know, <laughs> to be fair, they do come from a different dimension. They're basically right. from a different reality than we live in. So sure. They oh, can yeah, have no, different yeah, abilities. for sure. Yeah, they're aliens at the end of the day. So it's like, yeah, I, that makes sense to me. Right. Um. So the the president, every scene involving the president <laughs> to me is just glorious. You know, like you you have the surfers wave happening, like as he's saying goodbye to the president, which I thought was just the most hilarious out there thing. You've got the deca- declaration of war being given to the president just by filling out like they have a simple form version of a declaration of war that the president can fill out in this universe. Um to that, you know, complex bed looking contraption that he's in. I don't know. We don't ever really the the only clue that we get as to why the president is seems to be in that bed thing is that it sounds like he was recovering from like a back injury or back surgery or something like like that's the only thing we have in terms of why he would be sprawled out like that. As in many instances in this movie, there's a brief dialogue reference to it. Mm-hmm. Right before, right before Buckaroo has his first contact with the character of the president. Right, right. And the dialogue doesn't even really match up to what we see because the reference, the 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 line that's delivered almost makes you think that, well, perhaps the president has had some sort of a breakdown right. or has suffered some sort of an emotional trauma. But then we get to see the president on screen, and it's clearly a physical ailment of some type. And and he's essentially confined to what looks to be, and I don't know if this is right or not, but it looks like a traction bed. Yeah. Where he's, he's lying in it sort of face down, but it can rotate so that he can stand you know, be up. upright. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
it's it feels like it's some sort of a traction device. So I think your idea of some sort of a back injury or a spinal injury or something is probably spot on. But there's absolutely no setup to it other than that isolated line of dialogue yeah. before Buckaroo Banzai gets on the phone. Yeah, with the president. right. That's the only thing we have. Yeah. It's again <laughs> you know, and I don't know if I've actually explained it. It's the bizarre stuff in this movie that really makes me love it. Mm-hmm. It's it's all of these weird, just one-off references, unexplained things, things are that they try to explain through a line of dialogue, and then you sit and think about it and go, well, that doesn't really explain that. <laughs> yeah, That's that, the type but, of stuff I love about this movie. It's all of its yeah. quirks that add up to me. But then it's like it by great. the time you even have a chance to like come up with a theory, it's like, oh, they, we moved on from that. <laughs> Yeah, it's it, it's all blink. If it's all that type of blink and you'll miss it type of thing, yeah. because we get the line. He gets on the phone with the president, and and if I remember correctly, during that scene, it's during the conversation with the president that one of the factions of the dimensional aliens decides to intervene, and they send some sort of an electrical impulse through the phone line that zaps Buckaroo Banzai, mm-hmm. and then also happens to give him the ability to see the aliens who, oh, by the way, are among us and walking around disguised. They yeah, look like right? humans to us, but they're really aliens. Yeah, hashtag conspiracy theory, anyone? <laughs> Getting your tinfoil hats on for this. <laughs> well, and if you, I mean, that's, I'll admit, that's one of the things that within the context of this screwy script actually makes sense to me. Yeah, right. If there are aliens that are attempting to infiltrate our reality, to exit their dimension and enter our world, they would probably send an advanced guard if they could just to do reconnaissance, right? So, but in order to do that, they can't go walking around with their alien faces, so they got to look like us. Mm -hmm. And somehow, and that's and that's the thing. Even in that, there's no explanation of why we can't see them until he until Buckaroo Banzai gets shocked by this yeah, energy, right? and yeah. then he can see them. And also, it's just that's how it works. Sh- and also, because they caused the shock that caused them to see them for who they are. Like I'm thinking, if you're the bad aliens, like why would you want to give him the power to unmask yourselves to him? That's that's weird to me, you know. Yes, but remember the. The aliens that deliver that shock while he's on the phone with the president, those are the the good guys, right? They're the aliens that are working ultimately oh, with Buckaroo oh, Banzai. Really? Okay. Yeah, remember that's the good faction. They come in later in the they come in relatively later in the movie. Right. Um, okay, yeah. Sort of so, following that initial contingent that's already here on the planet. Yeah, so, so they're the those black, are the guys. Yeah, they're the black look troids, right? Exact uh Oh, I forget which. Co- yes. Yeah. They, I, yeah. Black electrodes yes. are the good yes. guys. Red electrodes are the bad guys. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are the guys that end up working on the right side, so to speak, within the context yeah. of the movie. So, and that's why they give him the shock so that he can so, see who the bad guys are. Right. And right. take them out. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because that makes, yeah, that would make more sense. But also it's like, it's so hard to, it's so hard to figure out like, like you, you sort of like once they're unmasked, you sort of like start to understand which ones are good, which ones are bad. I feel like if there's one criticism I have is that like, yeah, it was kind of hard to tell at certain points, like who was on the good side, who was on the bad side a little bit, a- you know? Absolutely. You, you it, It's actually more confusing after the aliens all drop their facades. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> other than maybe a particular outfit that one of them is wearing when you're introduced to him or her. Right. 
there is no distinguishing characteristics from yeah. one alien to the no. other. They all look exactly <laughs> the same. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, I'm sure thinking about it from a practical standpoint, I'm sure that's a function of we need to have a lot of people looking like aliens in this movie. So we either need to make a bunch of the same mask cheaply so that everybody can wear them, or we need to make three or four of them that will hold up so we can keep putting different actors in the same mask when we need them to be on screen. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Knowing the, the budget of the movie, it kind of strikes me as maybe the latter. They probably didn't have a ton of these alien getups that they could use. So they repurposed them. So they couldn't look that much different because then you'd have a real problem on your hands mm-hmm. when, you know, when John M doll is on the screen and then all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute that he's got the same stripe as John big Boutte, but they're, they're supposed to be different. So yeah, it, man. it avoids a whole lot to just be like, eh, they all look the same and <laughs> yeah. hope that the audience doesn't get too lost. Yeah, yeah, no. Sometimes I, I it could, works. I could, it yeah, doesn't. I was gonna say I definitely got lost a few times, so they they could have done a better job at that. I think, but, but that's just me. Easily, this movie easily has one of the best closing credits of any movie uh, we've covered on this show, right? I there's so much I want to talk about about this film, but the I, look, I you know I hyped it up when mm-hmm. we did the watch party. And I felt kind of bad afterward because I got the sense from the reaction or maybe the lack thereof that everyone, or at least most people, were looking at the end credit sequence thinking, why does he think this is so good? Mm-hmm. So I want to preface this by saying, one, I'm glad you think that it's an awesome closing credit sequence. Yeah. And two, it fits into my overall theme with this movie of the fact that it is great because of the quirkiness because of the things that are just sort of out there and sort of just crazy about it that don't make any sense, no matter how often you try to make them make sense. Mm-hmm. The closing credits for the film. I don't know that I've ever seen anything done like this in a movie. Yeah. It's the closest I've come to seeing what happens here is, is it's that type of movie where they will either, I would compare it to two different things. It's the movie where they will go back and replay a bit of a scene from the movie and then do a freeze frame on the character and flash the name up. Right, right. Which is probably more common in television, but it's been done yes, in some yeah. film too. And we mentioned it earlier, MacGyver, like that that very much is a MacGyver thing oh, that happens, especially in the OG that, MacGyver. Yeah. Yes, MacGyver and every other 1980s and some 1990s television sitcoms yeah, for sure. For sure. Um or it's it's the movie closing credits where you get to see what appear to be unused sequences from the film. So maybe it's scenes or parts of scenes that were cut. So you're seeing mm-hmm. the characters play, you're seeing the actors play the characters in these little bits as parts of the credits roll by. But it's you know, it's sort of it's extra you know compared what I, to what you've already had. You know what I you know what it reminded me of, and I'm just now thinking of this. It's bearing in mind when I say this is I'm not I'm not trying to equate these two because they're not exactly the same, but it did kind of give me a little bit of Anchorman vibes a little bit with the with that closing credit scene a little bit. Oh, my gosh. I cannot believe that I didn't make that connection before, but I think you've nailed it. Yeah, like it is. Yeah, it is the Anchorman. It's Anchorman before Anchorman. It really is, isn't it? Like, yeah, because it's got that same trope of like, you know, they're all walking towards the center of the frame, just like yes. they do in like the intro of Anchorman. Like, 
And I'm like, yeah, no, like this was Anchorman. This was the Anchorman intro before Anchorman. Now, like, so that's what I'm thinking. So now I'm taking away homework from this. I'm going to go back and watch the opening of Anchorman and I want to see how long they last. But the movie ends. And if I remember correctly, you get a quick fade to black and then it kind of fades up and you just see our characters sort of standing around. They're out in the open. It's, it's an open area. It looks like they're in one of those uh, water retention, those rain retention canals yeah. that are popular in, in think, some think, of the Southwest um, cities. Places I think, in California. Uh, yeah. I think it reminded me of like the, this sort of like the Greece one kind of like, cause, yeah, cause they have a similar one in Greece too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's basically there. It's this big concrete area. It's a concrete sort of valley or a ditch that they're in. But yeah. this one is huge, right? So the closing theme comes up, and as we've talked about before, it is eighty synth pop taken to the nth degree. Mm-hmm. It's done in the same style as some of the music we hear from the band, and obviously the incidental music throughout the movie. Right. The music starts, and I don't even know how. It just, this closing sequence just sort of starts to happen for no reason. Mm-hmm. At some point, the, the, the couple of characters start to move, and then everybody's walking. And at first, we've just got the core cast. We've got Buckaroo. We've got, um, we've got Perfect Tommy. I think we've got uh, Rawhide there in the first group. And, and oh, there's probably one more in there. Oh, um, Ellen Barkin's character. We've got uh, uh, Penny Pretty in there. Yeah. I think it's because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it starts off small and then they start walking. And you know, if you're watching it and you're listening to the music, it becomes clear at some point that they played the closing music while they were filming the scene because the characters are all walking in time to it. They're strutting. Mm -hmm. They're absolutely strutting through this canal as the music plays. For sure. And as they continue to walk, you get a few different angles and then more people start to join them, right? The larger cast of the rest of the Cavaliers come in. And I think we get to see... I forget. I forget what the order is that where they come in, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't oh, know if that's Pink, Pinky yeah. Carruthers comes. Oh, remind me to talk about Pinky Carruthers in a minute. Okay. Um, you see Pinky come in. Um, I think even you get to see um, Casper and Scooter, um, mm-hmm. the 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 man and his uh, the father and and his son who have the helicopter that they end up using in the in the climax. I think they're in there too, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. But it basically ends up being the main cast of heroes. And they're just doing this strut walk yeah. as, as the closing theme plays. And yes, there have been things like that that have happened in movies before. I don't know that they've ever lasted for, what was it, two and a half minutes? Yeah, I like didn't the time entire, it, almost the entire credit scene. Like, like the old, yes. like, I mean, and, and, and even when they are done with their strutting, it's like they end on this shot of like on the bridge, there's just like Buckaroo Bonsai, just like, and they just stay on that shot the entire time the, the credits are rolling. Yeah. The, 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 the main closing theme is probably about three minutes long, if I had to guess. Right. And for about two and a half of that, it's the people walking and the camera following them around. At one point, they all get to the end of this canal and they have to make a turn. And they do this synchronized turn like mm-hmm. they're an army marching group. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then they just keep on heading down the road. And mm-hmm. yeah, for like the last 30 seconds, they've all walked off screen and the camera just focuses on this spray paint graffiti that's that's in the canal that just says Buckaroo Banzai. And yeah. then it then it fades out after that. And then you get the rest of the closing credits in a traditional style. 
Yeah. Well, and, and they didn't even fade it out. Like they just kept it on that shot and kept the credits. Like they didn't even go to, they didn't even oh, fade right. to black. Th- yes, yeah. yes, yes. That's right. You get to see that Buckaroo Banzai graffiti the entire time. Yeah. The Absolutely. entire rest of the credits. Yeah, exactly. I should have watched this one more time before. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, well, and, it, uh, yeah. And, ag- mm-hmm. and again, it, I feel like a broken record because I keep saying it, but that's absolutely crazy. That's bonkers to end your movie like <laughs> right? that. And yet they did it. And I, I love it so, so much. I remember mm-hmm. that's one of the few distinct memories that I have of the movie is, and I guess it's not really a distinct memory per se. It's a feeling when you talked at the beginning about how certain things will put you back into a mindset or a headspace of a very specific point in time. That's one of those things for me. When I, when that opening credit sequence fires up and I hear that music and I see those guys start to do their strut, mm-hmm. it's an instant flashback to the first time I saw the movie. Yeah. And yeah. Mm-hmm. I hope, I hope that feeling never goes away because it's incredible. For and sure. it's just so out there. Yeah, man, for sure. Okay. So I want to, I want to end with this because, uh, cause I, we, I mentioned some great things about this movie, but, uh, there are some things that um, I do have some critiques about with this movie. So um, fair enough. You're not the only one just yeah, to be clear. Yeah, for sure. Um, but to borrow, <laughs> to borrow a phrase from the back to the future franchise, I'd like to think I'm not thinking eighth dimensionally on this movie. Okay. But I feel like this movie does require a lot of brain power to understand completely. Um, and especially like the first time I watched this, like I'll be completely honest, like this movie was very, very difficult to follow. And oh, absolutely. And, you know, and, and I was still trying to figure out what was going on in this movie when the credits were rolling, just to give you some context of my thought process. And, and I was kind of just left scratching my head at the end of this movie a little bit. Not to mention, by the way, I always check the IMDb summary to help put the doc together and okay. this is the first movie I've seen in IMDb's catalog where just there's straight up no summary um, in the IMDb page. <laughs> full stop. No one Wait, has is bothered right? to put a summary in there. Yeah. Go to the IMDb page and go to plot summary. Uh, or actually, I think you have to go under plot synopsis. And then if you scroll down, you see plot summary and there's just nothing. <laughs> there's just nothing there. <laughs> so I don't know. Oh my what gosh, I- you're right. Yeah, so like, so that was that made it even more difficult trying to prepare for this episode because I'm like, what in the hell? Like, what in the hell happened? So it's like I just had to watch the the entire movie again. It's the best thing ever. Yeah, but here's the thing, right? Like, because that's actually kind of my problem, though, is that like, like I shouldn't have to rewatch the entire movie all over again just to get basic concepts. Like, I understand, like a movie like Napoleon Dynamite, like there are some things like that you will miss the first time watching through, but you get the general concept from start to finish, like what's going on. Right. Whereas with this movie, I like that was not the case. Like I was rewatching this movie, having to understand some basic concepts that I just straight up missed the first time I watched it. And I, and I don't, and I don't like that. Well, and I'll be honest with you. I think, um, if I remember the numbers that you quoted as we started our conversation, uh, $6.3 million box office on a $17 million budget. Mm-hmm. I think you just hit on the reason why. 
Mm-hmm. Um, as much as I love the quirkiness of the film and as much as it ticks a lot of the boxes for me. Sure. At the end of the day, you have to make a movie that a reasonable consumer who is not obsessively pouring over the details of every scene sure. is able to follow. Mm-hmm. So your criticism is entirely valid. This movie is a fever dream that requires multiple viewings to truly not even appreciate, but just to understand on a basic level. Right. They're throwing so much at you in different scenes that sometimes don't even have logical transitions between them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not something that is, uh, I was about to say something that I'm, I'm not even going to say because it's not accurate. There are some movies where you can look at them and say, well, it, you, you just have to sort of, you have to make sure you're fully in the moment for every scene and it rewards sure. the investment of time. Mm-hmm. But you can't even say that in this movie because it's just throwing so much at you at once. Right. I really think that's the main problem here. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so it's really kind of the, a lot of the reasons why I love the film are a lot of the reasons why it doesn't work as a traditional film because there's right. just too much. It's too disjointed. Uh, some of the things don't tie together very well. There's a lot of confusion in terms of which characters are which, like we mentioned before, with the the black electroids and the red electroids. Mm-hmm. There is some there are some things that stand out very strongly in comparison to everything else. You've got an amazing, just absolutely scenery chewing performance by John Lithgow as uh, Dr. Emilio Lazardo slash uh, John Warfin, the mm-hmm. main bad guy. Right. And there are some scenes that he just absolutely overpowers everything else that's happening on screen. Mm-hmm. I love John Lithgow. I love him as an actor. And I generally like it when he gets a chance to choose some scenery. In this case, there should have been somebody on set that looked at him and said, John, bring it back a couple of notches. Just dial it down a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. Because I think a lot of his a lot of his characterizations and his tics get in the way there. Mm-hmm. So you take that and you layer it on top of a plot that's already convoluted to start with, with characters that are not easy to follow, with characters who I mean, from a motivation perspective, you, you kind of get the sense of what Buckaroo Banzai's main motivation is in terms of wanting to break the barrier and enter and be able to access the eighth dimension Mm -hmm. from both that test and from a flashback scene that we get about some earlier experiments that were done by Lizardo and um, from the guy who ends up working with, uh, with, um, with Buckaroo uh, in his work, uh, the Robert Ito character whose name escapes me right now, professor Hikita. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Thank you. IMDb. Um, (laughs) You get some sense of what the history of this work is, but there's a deleted scene to the movie that actually shows you that Buckaroo Banzai's parents were also involved in this type of work and they oh. were killed. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I just, I didn't know that. <laughs> Never saw the light of day until I think it was a Shout Factory Blu-ray release in the early 2000s, I want to say. Huh. Um, but there's a deleted scene. Which, by the way, has Jamie Lee Curtis playing Buckaroo Banzai's mother. What? <laughs> yes. Wow. How, 
I mean, the cast list for this movie is absolutely wow. insane. And I, and I don't know how they made it for 16 million, but, but here we are. Yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis was not good enough to make the final cut. Wow. Uh, it, I'm just saying. That's insane, man. So, but there's, there's so much here that's missing. The other piece to understand about this, and, and I know this doesn't give you necessarily an answer, but okay, one of the things you have to know about the film is that, um, and again, I'm going to, again, I'm going to refer to notes. His name is, uh, E.M. Rauch or Earl Mac Rauch. The final script for this movie came about after, if I remember correctly, probably 15 or 20 different drafts. Um, He's infamously known for having started movie draft uh, script drafts for this movie and then just never finishing them, setting them aside. And then he'd start a new draft and pick up this piece or that piece or this little element here and that little element there. Mm. And to some extent, I believe he was prodded um, by the director of the film, W.D. Richter, who actually gave Rauch the idea to write a full script for this after reading some of Rauch's earlier work. Oh, so it was a very much a fits and starts type of creative process. And, Mm. and honestly, it's kind of a minor miracle that Rauch actually got to the point where he was able to deliver. Interesting. I wonder if that has something to do with like the convolutedness of this movie. I wonder. I have to believe it does. And, and, you know, that uh, would make sense, right? There's, there's a, I won't say there's a wealth of information, but there is some, some decent information that I've seen. Um, out there on the internet in terms of like making of or the behind the scenes on this. Um, I have not dived into it in any great depth. So I don't necessarily want to ascribe any particular accuracy to it here. Mm-hmm. But there is a pretty strong indication from a lot of those things that it was just sort of a cluster of a writing process that Rauch really struggled to get through. And part of me thinks that when you look at it through that lens, the fact that we got anything resembling a coherent movie in any part <laughs> yeah, is kind of a minor miracle. Yeah, for sure. But it, it there's definitely, I'd, I'd say there's a lot of potential to the script for this film that was probably not able to be realized. And there was a bit more potential that just never made it into the final draft. Yeah, for sure, man. Because because it's because that's interesting, like because you you were talking about that deleted scene because like because I'm trying to think like um Dr. Lizardo, like you like you see him in the insane asylum and, you know, like you, you find out very quickly why he's in there. Right. But like um and it, and, it, and it was clear to me that like he doesn't like that Bonzu is, you know, is able to make it through when he, he's not after, you know, seeing that flashback. Right. Mm-hmm. But um. But like, what's weird? It, it, it almost seems like he's kind of jealous of Bonsai in a way. But like, but um, and like, it, here's the thing: like, it took me a second watch through to realize, oh yeah, no, the doctor, uh, it, like, he's also working for the for the bad guy aliens, right? Like, but but that's another thing that just doesn't get explained. Like, how the hell he starts working with them? You know, like, I, I'm still unsure about like how he even gets involved with them in the first place. Like that's not really even mentioned either. You know, that's, that's a really good example. It's another one of those things that should have been, it should have been portrayed on the screen more clearly. He's, it's not that he's, it's not that Lizardo is working with the aliens. He's actually possessed. He's inhabited by one of the eighth dimension aliens. Yeah. The the John Warfen character 
has actually taken over Lizardo's body because Lizardo had that failed attempt to travel fully into the eighth dimension in that flashback scene we see right, from the, right. the experiment in the thirties. Mm-hmm. You you see some struggling on screen. You see Lizardo kind of half in and half out of that dimension and he's right. being attacked by these aliens. And then he just comes out. He kind of pops back through the wall or the hole in the yeah, wall that was created by the Yeah, and he's just all of a sudden this crazy guy. Yeah. Right. And he's all of a sudden he's just insane. And if you're not paying attention or if you miss a line or two of dialogue here or there later in the film, and that's all you take away from it, you're thinking, well, he just, he got stuck in a wall and he went crazy. Yeah. But it's, it, but it's so much more than that, but you don't necessarily, the movie doesn't point that to you. Like I, I'm not a huge fan of giant neon signs in movies that point out, this is a big plot point. You have to pay attention. Yeah, no, this is something you really need to know. Yeah, it doesn't I don't have to like be like that. that, right? But at least give me something. Makes give me a couple of steps or breadcrumbs that I can follow to get there on my own. Right here, it's just it's that, and then like half an hour later, thirty five minutes later, there's another little bit of dialogue where you realize, oh wait a second, he's actually John Warfen. He doesn't think he's John Warfen. He actually is John. Right? Warfen. Yeah, but like, yeah, no, it's. Yeah, yeah, that and that's I feel like that's a kind of the result of the um the incoherentness of it a little bit. Yeah. And um Oh, sure. Cuz I'll admit even having watched this movie again just recently and not having have seen it for so long, there were parts of it that stood out to me like, "Ooh, I don't remember that being like that." Or mm-hmm. it just it it definitely had a different <laughs> feel. I think as time yeah. goes on, my it loses a little bit of its luster for me, but again, there's so much of it for me that connects back to a specific point in time in my, in my life mm-hmm. that it's always going to hold a special place in my heart just because of that. I, it's yeah. going to make me overlook a whole bunch of stuff that other people would just hold their nose at, including go, the fact that Bonsai is perfectly comfortable with just grabbing an an alien looking brain something or other that he doesn't know what sure. it is. <laughs> like and you just. <laughs> something something unexplainable not of this world attaches itself to your experimental rocket yeah. vehicle and your during first an experiment. thing is to pick it up yeah <laughs> just pop that sucker off and stick it in a jar i mean yeah. he is it does look like a brain and he is a neurosurgeon so he probably just felt yeah okay it. fair enough i guess yeah right. <laughs> but um i want to talk about yeah we we talked about penny here uh or earlier like the character penny here and i i, mm-hmm. I want to talk about her a little bit because Oh boy. Um, <laughs> so, so it starts out with the fact, so they're, they're doing a gig. Bonsai's um, band is doing a gig and he, uh, Bonsai discovers there's a woman in the audience who is just like really sad out in the audience. And like, he's, he's trying to make everyone happy, I guess is kind of his motivation for, you know, mm-hmm. po- pointing her out, I guess. And and it turns out this woman happens to be a long lost relative of his uh, late wife Anne, which by the way Anne doesn't get mentioned like at all throughout this movie. Like the only reason I know that is because of a another summary I looked up. By the way, uh, which again, well, okay, so a couple of things there. Um, it's uh, I'm not sure where you saw Anne, but the character he thinks that she is at first is Peggy. Because if you remember in the scene, he actually calls her Peggy the first two or three times that he addresses oh, okay. her. Okay. Right? Um, and uh, rather than just being a long-lost relative, Penny is the – she's supposed to be. This is what we eventually find out. She's the identical twin sister of his long-lost wife, Peggy. Yeah, which – 
which makes it really weird the fact yes. that she ends up being the love interest for Bonsai at the end. Like the fact that they like she is the love interest. Well, Wait, okay, no. so <laughs> there's okay, so there's an entirely different conversation to be had around, you know, what is the expiration date on grief? But yeah. Again, this is one of those we just got done talking about it. This is one of those things in this movie where you only figure it out after you sit down and think about it and maybe after having seen it a couple of times, but you have to piece <laughs> this together. Yeah. There are there are some scenes where you see very poorly um highlighted in the shots, but there are some scenes that are framed where you can see barely a picture of Buckaroo Banzai with the Ellen Barkin character in the background while two characters are talking or something like that. Right, right. Those are intended to show you this is Buckaroo's wife, Peggy, the one that's now gone. Mm-hmm. And those are supposed to be hints that this woman is not just some random woman in the audience that showed up who was despondent, that there's a reason why he was attracted to her. Yeah. But it's what they thought they were doing to make that connection, even from the very first moment we see Ellen Barkin on screen and, and we get that first interaction in the club between her and, and Buckaroo. I have no idea what they thought they were setting up there, but it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Right. Like, cause it's this weird like scene where like they're setting it up where she's in the audience, right? Like she's in the audience enjoying the show. She's crying hysterically and then Bonsai tries to do like this, you know, song to try to cheer her up, right? And then she's just like in the middle of the song, just all of a sudden she just whips out a gun and is about to commit suicide, right? Yeah. Like, just like what? <laughs> Where did that come so, from? You know. So, so apparently, I think we have to assume that she was going to unalive herself at some point, maybe not right here in the bar. Yeah. But she was clearly drowning her sorrows. She was clearly distraught and she was way over her limit. Mm -hmm. Now, had she known up until that point that she was going to do it right there during the set, during the show, if we say that, yes, she did, why the hell would you choose a concert that's being done by ostensibly somebody who is one of the biggest musical yeah. acts on the planet. If we're to believe the setup of Buckaroo Banzai and the Hong Kong Cavaliers, why would you choose them to do it for the notoriety? I guess. I don't know, <laughs> but here's the thing. If that's not what it was, let's say she didn't intend to end her life there. Mm-hmm. And it was a spur of the moment decision she made in the club after having the conversation with Buckaroo Banzai. Yeah. Was it just simply having the interaction with him that decided to make her think that's the last straw? Was yeah. it hearing Buckaroo Bonds I actually sing? Which, yeah, I, I mean, for a guy who's supposed to be a music superstar, I'm sorry, Peter Weller, <laughs> stick to acting, my man. Stick to the acting. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, but 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 then she misses, and then it's treated as like an assassination attempt on Bonsai, which is the craziest well, thing. That's, Again, it's, there's parts of this movie that is just, okay, we're going to have this happen so that our characters can end up here, and then we can do the next thing. Yeah. Yeah, she 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 goes to raise the weapon to her head. She's bumped from behind, I guess, by a waitress who bends over to pick up something off the ground. I don't actually see the bump happen. Yeah. It, it's, it's really weird. Ellen Barkin is bringing, bringing the gun to 
uh, to her temple. And all of a sudden she just points it up in the air and shoots. Right. And yeah. yeah, And then the reaction is she's there to kill Buckaroo Banzai. Like he's her target. Obviously he must be the target because I mean, who else here out of all these people? And I understand saying this in 2023 is, you know, uh, right. um, You know, do you shoot a scene like this in 2023? I I don't don't think you do. Yeah, because it's yeah, it's a very weird way to introduce that character. Very weird. Weird in any context. Forget about modern times. Exactly. It just doesn't make sense. And then obviously she ends up taken away, even though Buckaroo is still he's still concerned about her. He. Yeah, and bails her out of jail. Yeah, left out, and yeah, and then and that's that's where I'm talking about. If that happens, so that then we can get to the jail, so that we can meet Jeff Goldblum's character, who happens to have to meet them at the jail because that's where they're going next. Right. So that Buckaroo can bail out this this woman who he just literally met the night before. Yeah, and, and the also, only connection. Yeah, and it also but here's he becomes the, thing. the love interest too. Yeah. Well, but that's that's ultimately what they're using to tie it together is this fact that she is supposed to be at the time we think, well, he obviously knows her from somewhere. We don't know yet that she's the identical, the long lost identical twin sister. Mm-hmm. At this point, we just think it's, well, yeah, she looks a lot like his his dead wife. Yeah. And then it's later that you find out, oh, yes, they were actually sisters because they're both from Wyoming. And even though she's not from she's not from Kobe, she's from Lubbock. Yeah. But she was born in Cody. In like Wyoming. you know, like you know what this like you know what this relationship is to me. Like this this seems like a mm-hmm. Luke Skywalker Leia relationship. You know what I mean? It kind like, of is. It really is. <laughs> because at no point during any of this, during the entire runtime of the movie, at no point do they ever explain how Penny ends up in that place at that time. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, not even an attempt at a coincidental. This is what brought her here, and this is why he was there, and it just ended up that way. They just—it's just nobody cares. Yeah. What one last? I, there, yeah. I guarantee you, there was a discussion where it was like, "Hey, um, EM, it, this is this is the director talking. This is Richter talking to Roush. Um, hey, EM, um, yeah, you got her here, and and I get what you're trying to do here, but." We don't know why she got there. Did you forget to put a scene? And he was like, "No, nah, no, nah, nah, just shoot it. It's my <laughs> script. Shoot it." Yeah. And and I have to believe Richter was like, "All right, we'll shoot it. Whatever." Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Uh, so let we'll we'll wrap with we'll wrap up with this, Kevin, uh, because uh, I, another uh, thing, another weird trope that just is like all of a sudden just gets added out of nowhere. It's like. It's like causes like there's the aliens are going to cause all this destruction if they get the overthruster. Oh, and by the way, if they get the overthruster, we'll be forced to uh, we'll be forced to send um, um, communications to Russia that will think that the United States is targeting them. <laughs> like, yeah, what? <laughs> as as if everything we've talked about about this being a a definite love child of the '80s type of movie isn't yeah. enough. Then we get the the nail on the head, bonk bonk on the head, uh, Cold War allegory right, right at the very last minute. And to be honest, if it hadn't been there, I might have been a little surprised by it because this is a movie that yeah. you can absolutely throw the Cold War into. Why not? 
Sure. We've got All right. we've got a bonkers president. We've got some political stuff going on. Remember what that review on RogerDebert.com said. It's a hybrid of like 17 different things. Mm-hmm. Why not make it a, a doomsday thriller right at the very last? <laughs> yeah, <while we> right. <laughs> it's almost like, well, you know, I mean, we've got we've got a can of film left. Is there anything else you want to throw in here? Yeah, yeah, let's add nukes. <laughs> 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 at, least I mean, they got to, at least they got to wear the sick looking 3d glasses when they were talking to uh the black i love those leader right? i love those glasses yeah Look, right okay so you know i'm a doctor who fan right mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. i host i co-host a podcast talking about doctor who which it which means i am a fan on some level of really schlocky old style special effects these these 3d glasses these alien specs as i call them um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which which so i have okay i'm not going to go down that road cuz that'll take us another 20 minutes yeah yeah but yeah. yeah the the little the little glasses they have these goggles um that they put on to be able to look at the aliens um it's nothing more than like a strip of bubble wrap with some plastic framing around them to keep them from just flapping around in the yeah, breeze. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a bedazzled like um It's great. Yeah, it's like a bedazzled uh eye mask, you know? Like that's, th- yeah. That's exactly what it looks like. It looks like one of those um one of those fluid-filled ice eye masks that you can strap to your head right? and you know, yeah. help reduce puffiness. The best part of it is that if you look closely in that scene where they're all gathered in the room and they're seeing the message from um, from John Emdahl. Mm-hmm. If you look closely, there's a couple of those characters in that scene. Clearly, they cannot see what's happening as the <laughs> filming is going on because the lenses in those glasses did not line up with their eyeballs. I guarantee you there were two or three actors in that scene who were completely blind. They, all they could do was hear the, the, the lines being spoken. They couldn't see Jack. I guarantee it because those yeah. things were completely out of whack and (laughs) and i love this film because of stuff like that yeah for sure man so uh so yeah uh you you say you love this film a lot so uh i think i can guess what your rating for this movie is going to be kevin thumbs up thumbs down i give it a meh no i'm kidding (laughs) um it is it's just shy of a full-throated enthusiastic two thumbs up for me i'll give it a thumb and a half okay um because and we've talked about it there's there's so much again being somebody who loves the quirkiness and having this movie kind of hit me in my soul at just the right point in time in my life mm-hmm. i have to admit that there are there are a lot of flaws to this and the flaws are what make this just shy of being one of those universally re- well regarded cult classics like there are some movies that bomb at the box office and then they come back and everybody realizes after the fact exactly how great they were. Mm-hmm. Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension is not that movie. Mm-hmm. It appeals to a very specific type of viewer who's looking for very specific things and is probably more than willing to forgive some very specific failures in terms of just the standard storytelling process. Mm-hmm. I happen to be one of those people. So mm-hmm. they found the perfect viewer in me. I see. Overall, absolutely. I'll give it one and a half thumbs. Yeah. Well, and, and I can probably yeah. guess what your decision is yeah. going to be if I had to. Yeah. So you know how you mentioned uh, earlier in the episode that this mo- this is the kind of movie where you either love it or you ha- or you hate it. 
I believe I said that. Un- yes. Un- unfortunately, I think I have to. <laughs> I fall into the I hate it category, and don't hate me for this, Kevin. But I have to give it a thumbs down, man. I do not hate you at all. Listen, mm-hmm. it, the beauty of anything, uh, any content—movies, films, TVs, podcasts, whatever. The beauty of them is that everybody's going to take away something different. Yeah. I'm not going to hate you for not liking this movie. It's it's a hard watch. Yep. And it's definitely something that it's it's just not going to hit. It's not going to check yeah. the right boxes and, and for that's, everybody. And that's exactly why I'm giving it a thumbs down. Like it's it's very tough to follow. I had to watch it twice to even understand like basic concepts of this movie. And mm-hmm. you know, it was just. I don't know. It's like, and the particular story too, I don't, I just, I don't think it really grasped me. And that's not, that part isn't really even the movie's fault. It's just, you know, I just didn't prefer that type of story, you know? So like, you know, this movie just wasn't my cup of tea or crystal light, I guess, since I don't drink tea, but. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And, and you have the experience now of having said, I didn't know about this movie before. I know about it now. I'm going to move on with my life. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> but uh, they but, can't but, all be winners. Is what yeah. I'm right. Yeah. No, they can't all be. Yeah. No, that's the thing. Like, yeah, there are a lot of good movies we've covered on this show. Um, there are some that just don't, that just don't hit me, you know, and that's the beauty yeah. of this show is we find out um, what works and what doesn't now, you know, but, Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, this is such a great conversation, Kevin. Thank you so much again for, uh, mm. for joining us for this uh, episode. Uh, um, I know you mentioned earlier you're on the Going Through Who podcast. Uh, tell the folks where they can find it. Uh, it's it's on all of your different podcatchers. Um, if you want to check out the entire library of shows and for Going Through Who, that's a lot because, mm-hmm. again, the premise of the show is going through the time and space of Doctor Who one episode at a time. If you're not aware, the show's been on since 1963. There's a lot of episodes. Yep. <laughs> um, if you want to check out the entire catalog, um, I mean, it's it's all credit to TSCN Sam. So go to tscn.tv slash GTW for going through who. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you want to check out the podcast on the regular, we release episodes every other week in most cases. Um, and you can find it on any podcast feed or podcatcher of your choosing. Right on, man. That's fantastic, man. And uh, yeah, one of these days, I've tasked Sam, by the way, with um, finding a one particular Doctor Who um, like series or movie or something that I could watch. Because yeah, because absolutely it is impossible now to go through every single um, Doctor Who, like, you know, not just in a podcast sense, but just life sets like there's just no time anymore you know like there's so many of it now but i've tasked sam to uh to find a good um a good doctor who uh series so we'll definitely circle around to doctor who one of these days so all right if i can get my hooks into you for doctor who i'm gonna do it yeah absolutely (laughs) man but i've been a who fan my almost my entire life so yeah yeah for sure yeah so uh yeah (laughs) but uh but yeah that's great man of course, I do a watch party for each of the movies that we review on this show. If you want to join the watch party with everyone here in the Discord, I do it in, uh, at, over at discord.cinemavention.com. You can join the conversation there as well. Lots of people chatting about all the movies we've covered on this show. But if you can't make it to the watch party, don't worry. We have it available on demand exclusively to everyone who supports the show at patreon.com slash one. 
thank you, thank you, thank you so much to everybody who supports this show and keeps it going. Don't forget that I'm live twice a week over at twitch.tv slash is one If you want to send in your feedback about this movie we discussed today, you can do so. Email at cinemavention.com and visit the website to see all the previous movies we've covered on this show over at cinemavention.com and a link to uh, subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcatcher of choice as well. So after you've added going through who, um, check your um, podcast directory for Cinemavention as well and subscribe if you like uh, these episodes. Uh, music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. Thank you so much to him. He's over at incompetech.com. And we'll be back next week to discuss the movie House Party with Curtis LaRock. Ah, uh, man, I'm, I'm so excited to talk about this movie with Curtis. This is going to be a great movie to talk about. I hope you'll be there for that episode next week. Until then, we'll see you next time. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>